When I found out I was supposed to wear a coat and tie, I was worried a little bit about it, not because I hadn't worn a coat in a while, but I haven't worn a tie in years. Used to wear one every day, and I said, can I remember how to tie a tie? Fortunately, it came back pretty easily. And, uh, hey, I want to tell you, I'm excited about being here today. In fact, I think, Mike, the last time I wore a tie was when I was at the conference over on Rocky Point and uh, was able to speak there. This is a privilege and a pleasure for me to be here with you. We've been here almost nine years, and uh, we love Clearwater. In fact, my wife loves Clearwater so much that she said, John, you can leave if you'd like and go someplace else. Maybe you can come back and visit me in Clearwater. <laughs> so if it happens again, I will definitely be on my own. And uh, someone said, well, when are you going to retire? And Donna said, I don't think he'll retire till he dies. And somebody else said, well, I wish he'd hurry up and make his mind up. I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, and if you would care to stand with me as we honor the Word of God in its reading, we will begin with verse 4 and continue through verse 22, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the matter was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you, because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have abandoned me and served other gods, so they are doing to you as well. Now then listen to their voice. However, you shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in his chariots for himself and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to do his plowing and to gather in his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give it to his high officials and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out on that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. 
so that we, we also may be like all the nations and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint a king for them. You may be seated. The founding fathers believe that the Bible has a lot to say about government and those who govern. In a 10-year study conducted by the political science department at the University of Houston, researchers collected 15,000 pieces of writing by the founders to ascertain the source of their ideas. According to the researchers, uh, the study included 3,152 pieces that they believe had the greatest impact on America's founding. They discovered that the three men most quoted by the founders were Sir William Blackstone, Baron Montesquieu, and John Locke. The researchers were surprised, however, to find that the Bible was quoted 16 more times, 16 times more often than these three men. In fact, 34% of all the quotes by the founders were taken straight from Scripture. Furthermore, another 60% of the founders' quotes were quotations of men who had quoted the Bible. In total, 94% of the founders' quotes came either directly or indirectly from God's Word. The Bible, of course, is filled with insights about government and those who govern. One of the most fascinating passages is found in 1 Samuel chapter 8, which we read moments ago. To this point in Israeli history, the Hebrew people had been ruled by no man but by God alone. They had prophets to settle personal and national disputes, and they had various judges who provided leadership in times of international crisis. When the crisis ended, the judges and the people went home to their families and to their businesses. They had no standing army, no Congress. And they paid no taxes. It was just the people, the prophet, the interim judges, and God. It was a system that worked amazingly well. That is precisely why the request of the Israeli elders in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 8 is so astonishing. The last part of that verse, again, noted, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Even more astonishing, especially to those who live in a society in which government takes center stage, is the discovery of Samuel's displeasure with their request. That's in verse 6. More astonishing still is that 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 17, reveals that God looked upon their request to be ruled by human government as great wickedness. Now, the rifle shot of 1 Samuel 8 is found in God's instruction to Samuel in verse 9. He said, warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. 
God wanted his people to measure the far-reaching implications of their request. God wanted to place in full view the tendencies of human government. What is revealed in 1 Samuel 8 is nothing short of astounding, so prepare to be astounded. First, God says in 1 Samuel 8 that human government has a tendency to take. Look at verse 11 again. This will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take. Notice the word translated take. That word means to seize. It means to plunder. The word happened to be used in the Old Testament in association with illegal appropriations. In verses 11 through 17, the word take appears no fewer than 15 times, six times explicitly, nine times implicitly. The government has a tendency to take. In fact, throughout the course of history, taking is easily seen as the overwhelming activity of government wherever human government has been in place. Even in our own nation, by the time a person pays federal taxes, Social Security taxes, Medicaid taxes, state taxes, local taxes, property taxes, road use taxes, sales taxes, garbage assessments, along with a mountain load of various fees and licenses, the average percentage of income that goes to the government via taxes from every person in this nation is 43% on the low side, 58% on the high side. Of course, we probably should consider ourselves fortunate as uh, there was a time in England when their tax rate was at 90%. The Beatles even wrote a song about it called The Tax Man. You probably remember it. Well, let's assume for a moment that the lower figure is correct. That means that we as individuals have to work more than five months, January to the first week in June, before we are done paying the government each year. If the higher figure is correct, then everything we earn through the third week of July goes to the government. If we underpay our annual taxes by more than 10%, the government will not only charge interest on what we fail to pay, they will also assess a penalty. On the other hand, if a person overpays their taxes in a given year, does the government pay interest to the taxpayer on the use of his or her money? Or do they assess themselves a penalty and put it in our pockets? Well, not on your life. So first, the government has a tendency to take. Second, we discover in 1 Samuel 8 that the government has a tendency to dominate. Look at verse 17b. You yourselves will become the king's servants. The word translated servants is the same word used in the ancient world for household slaves. Also notice the double pronouns, you yourselves will become the king's servant. There is the emphasis here on the loss of individual freedom. God is trying to say to these people through his prophet Samuel that eventually governments come to see us as working for them and belonging to them, not them working for us 
or belonging to us. No one knew that better than the founding fathers of this nation. As a result, they produced what has got to be considered one of the most brilliant documents ever to come from the pen of man. It began with the words, we, the people. This document guaranteed and supposedly still guarantees a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Nearly 250 years later, the very government established by that document comes to us and says, do it our way or you will receive no funds. And they deliver ultimatums about textbooks, ultimatums about school curriculums, ultimatums about health systems, ultimatums about various services, and ultimatums about sexual orientation. A house cannot be built without governmental approval of the plans, the procedure, and the final product. A business cannot be started without a permit from the government. A commode cannot be flushed without the government telling us how much water can be used to flush it. So each time a person makes use of the commode, he or she is reminded that their hard-earned tax dollars are being flushed down the toilet. You've got to have a license to drive, a license to fish, a license to hunt. You've got to buy a tag for your car, a tag for your truck, a tag for your motorcycle, a tag for your boat, and a tag for your trailer that pulls your boat. We are even compelled to buy a tag for our dogs and cats. The government not only takes, but the government dominates. You know as well as I that the government has taken away the right of parents to spank their children, while at the same time they reserve the right to give our children contraceptives and abortions and gender-altering hormones and surgery without parental consent. Someone posted recently on Facebook, and I say it just like they posted it, the time out generation has not turned out nearly as well as the ass-whooping generation. (laughs) Which generation did you grow up in? Now the government tells the citizens of the United States when and where they can talk about their faith, when and where they can display a Bible, when and where they can pray, All in the name of the separation of church and state. Would you be shocked to discover that the phrase separation of church and state neither appears in the Declaration of Independence nor the U.S. Constitution? Would you be surprised to discover that in the first 160 years of its existence, the Supreme Court looked favorably upon the influence of Christianity in government affairs? During those 16 decades, the justices of our highest judicial body interpreted the First Amendment as a protection of the church against the control or the interference of the state. 
The First Amendment was therefore created, at least in part, as an impenetrable wall to prevent the erection of an official state church. The founding fathers never meant to exclude religious sway in the affairs of state. Freedom of religion did not mean freedom from religion in civil concerns. Listen to what some of our founding fathers had to say. Patrick Henry wrote, It cannot be emphasized too strongly that this nation was founded not by religionists, that is pluralists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Jay, contributor to the Federalist Papers and first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, wrote, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers. And it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. James Madison, another contributor to the Federalist Papers, and two-time U.S. president said, Before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a member or a subject to the governor of the universe. Religion is the basis and foundation of government. John Adams, George Washington's successor to the president, said, we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The journals of our founding fathers, as well as the minutes of those first congressional sessions, were filled with accounts of how lawmakers took principles from the Bible and voted them into our government. Now, if these things are true, and they are, then I, for one, cannot, cannot, cannot understand why the First Amendment is so difficult to understand. Did the founding fathers mean for this idea to be so complicated by the lawmakers of our nation? Well, you know as well as I, you get lawyers involved and it gets complicated real quick. Consider what the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says in regard to religion. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The first clause is an establishment clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The second clause is an exercise clause. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now interpreted via the cultural milieu of the times in which it was written, The Establishment Clause prohibits the mandate of religion, but the Exercise Clause encourages the promotion of religion, and I would say any religion. However, for the Founding Fathers, that religion was Christianity. The Establishment Clause means that the practice of religion cannot be forced upon anyone. But the exercise clause encourages the legitimacy of religious debate and or religious proclamation in the public forum. 
a couple of years ago when the Southern Baptist Convention was in, uh, where, where were we, Donna? What, what city were we in when the guy was up there wanting to preach, wanting to, uh, he was out with the lunch crowd and he took his perch up on one of the benches out there. Do you remember that? He had his microphone in his hand. It was in Texas. And, and so he just started preaching away. And, and I'm not telling you that I disagree with what he was preaching. That wasn't the point. But some of the, uh, some of the security guards, even they had a couple of policemen with them, started to go up and stop him from speaking in that public forum. Well, I went up and stood beside him, not because I necessarily agreed with what he was saying. In fact, I don't remember much of what he said. However, when the security guards and even the police began to come up there to retrieve him, I shook my hand and said, you will not. He has the right to speak. And they backed off. Then Nick Shalna, who is about three feet taller than I am, was standing down around the peripheral with my wife Donna. And he handed her the books that were in his hand and said, well, if he's going to get arrested, I'm going to get arrested with him. He got a raise after that. (laughs) If you believe in free speech, you believe it or you don't. And we must protect it. The Establishment Clause prevents the institution of a state church in society, but the Exercise Clause encourages the influence of religious morality in the guidance of civil affairs. The Establishment Clause says, I can't make you accept my religion. I never try to make anyone accept what I believe. But at the same time, the exercise clause says you can't keep me from talking about it or practicing my religion. What I believe may be offensive to you. What I believe may be highly offensive to you. However, the First Amendment, if it means anything, it means that no law can be made at any level of society that prohibits my personal freedom to express and practice my faith. The only exception to freedom of religious expression are those in which the state can demonstrate a compelling interest. For example... If my religion calls for Sharia law, and there is a city in this nation right now that is comprised mostly of those who practice Sharia law, and it is said that they have even participated in it, the government can step in and say this, you cannot participate in honor killings regardless of what your religion says. The state has a compelling interest to keep people alive. Here's another example. If my religion says I can burn your house down, if you disagree with me, the state can step in and say, oh no, you can't burn down the houses of others regardless of what your religion says. The state has a compelling interest to protect home ownership and private property. Of course, 
the state officials on our west coast sort of forgot about that not long ago. When BLM was marching and burning buildings and pulling down doors, and I remember now as vivid as it was yesterday, a man and a woman standing in the front door of their home, one with a shotgun and another with a rifle, saying, you will not come into this house. Those two people had the courage to do what the state did not have the courage to do. The state, in my view, has a compelling interest to protect home ownership and private property. Of course, if the left has its way, there will be no home ownership and there will be no private property, so you won't have to worry about it. When the Establishment Clause is rightly seen as a prohibition against the mandate of religion rather than a restriction against the promotion of religion, then I believe that the differing facets of the First Amendment are harmonized with ease. For example, the Founding Fathers would allow for religious assembly in a publicly funded school as long as that attendance at that assembly is not mandated. The Founding Fathers would allow for a teacher in a public classroom to have a copy of the Bible on his or her desk or bookshelf as long as no student is required to read that Bible for purposes of indoctrination. The Founding Fathers would allow prayer in schools as long as participation in that prayer is voluntary. And if you keep up with the news at all, you know this fight has had to be has had to be engaged again and again and again in our nation and every time the courts come down on the side of free speech the left just comes right back and sues again the founding fathers would allow the ten commandments to hang on a school wall not as an encouragement for someone to describe to a particular belief system as a means of salvation but as a guideline for civilized orderly society Which one of the Ten Commandments would not be helpful to any society? How about you shall not murder? How about you shall not bear false witness? How about you shall not covet? How about you shall honor your father and mother? As we have heard over these last couple of days, this is exactly what the left and some on the right are trying to take away. Rip children away from their parents. The founding fathers would allow a student to attend a religious school using government funds because he or she attends that school out of choice rather than compulsion. Thank you, Ron DeSantis. The First Amendment... I'll tell Ronnie you appreciate it. (laughs) The First Amendment actually promotes and encourages religion as long as that religion is not mandated. My brother is a pastor in the Atlanta area. And two or three years ago, I was up visiting with him and preached for him. And he said, "Uh, you know, they're building a Buddhist temple down the street from the church. I said, really? He said, yeah, one of my sweet Elderly ladies came up to me and said, Brother Phil, we are, we're, we're having the erection of a Buddhist temple right down the street. What are we going to do about it? 
He says, well, I guess we're going to let them do whatever it is that Buddhists do. This is a free country after all. It is freedom of religion for all. Listen to this. Remove the morals of religion from society and you remove the basis for law and order as well as personal freedom. If there is no moral law, that means there is no God. And if there is no God, there is no right, there is no wrong, and everyone is free to do whatever he or she pleases. You know, sometimes I encounter a person I just like to slap silly right across the head. You ever meet a person like that? I don't do it for two reasons. Number one, I'd go to jail. And number two, the God I serve says don't do it. He didn't ask me how I felt about it. Because if I did what I felt about it, I'd put a bazooka on the front of my truck and just blow everybody out of the road that gets in my way. But I live differently because of the God I serve. And because he has set forth a moral law that keeps cities, communities, townships safe and secure and orderly. Yes, the prohibition against murder is rooted in religion. The prohibition against stealing rooted in religion. The prohibition against bearing false witness rooted in religion. God without man is still God, but man without God is chaos, confusion, and anarchy. Our founding fathers never, 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 never intended for the First Amendment to be a foe of religion, but a friend. Mandate? No. Promotion? Yes. So the tendency of government is to dominate. Regardless of how well-intentioned the government begins, domination is always the end. Thomas Jefferson repeatedly said that the best government is the smallest government. That governments are not to be the masters of the people, but the servants of the people. Abraham Lincoln referred to those Jeffersonian principles as the definitions and axioms of a free society. There can be no argument today that the government has intruded into the medical arena, the academic arena, the scientific arena, the religious arena, the sexual arena, and much, much more. Why? Because that is the nature of the beast. The larger the government becomes, the more intrusive government becomes. Write it down. God made sure that Israel knew the tendencies of human government. They take and they dominate. Now let's get around to the express purpose of this conference. What I have set forth to this point has been a bridge... 
that I want to walk across for the next few minutes. As we walk, I want to suggest today that what is true for human governments is just as true for every institution that has ever been created or established with humankind in the administrative position. Listen to this, including the church. That is precisely why, in my opinion, the Bible refers to power concentrated in human hands as great wickedness whether that power is wielded by one person or vested in a small group of people that's an oligarchy or by one institution or by a network of institutions since we are talking about what's happening in America at this moment, then it makes sense to mention something of the late 18th century when opposition arose in the colonies to what appeared to them to be the expansion of the Church of England. The Quebec Act of 1774, which established Catholicism as the official church in the French-speaking regions of Canada, raised fears in the colonies as to what might happen to them. And while the causes of the American Revolutionary War had its political as well as economic components, it is also certain that freedom of religion had a notable seat at the table. Now, according to historians, most churches during the Revolutionary period supported the war with pastors in many of those churches interpreting the battles of the ancient Israelites as mandates for fighting the British. One pastor even said, the cause of America is the cause of Christ. Well, if it was the cause of Christ then, I hesitate to say it remains the cause of Christ today. Of course, there are those who gleefully point out that the major spiritual beliefs held by most of the uh, founding fathers happen to be that of deism, not Christianity. Well, this is neither the venue to argue that one way or the other or the moment, but this much is sure. In the founding of this nation, deists and Christians came together on one issue in particular and here it is religious faith is not an issue that the state has any business dictating I believe that with all of my southern heart and its charm let me tell you something else I believe no man or prince, or church, or any form of centralized power has any business telling anyone what they can and can't believe. Whether deists or Christians, the founders of this nation had the wisdom and the moxie to put it in writing that the government had to steer clear of telling Christians and or the church what they can or cannot do and what they can and cannot believe. Steer clear. 
Somebody mentioned earlier, I think it was Mike, said that when the pandemic came, we decided we're going outside. I preached out of the back of my pickup truck. I called the sheriff's office and I said, we will be worshiping this Sunday and every Sunday after that outside. Just wanted you to know. And one of our dear gentlemen came up to me and said, Pastor, I just want you to know I'm behind you. I said, just don't be too far behind me, okay? (laughs) And now there are those who actually want to establish the United States of America as a Christian state with power concentrated in one person. Are you kidding me? Never mind the logistical nightmare with a monster of that size. Just look at history. How did that work out for King Saul and the United Kingdom? When he employed a witch to raise, the de- to raise someone from the dead. How did that work out for King David when his own son Absalom attempted to take the throne by force and kill his own father? How did that work out for Solomon when he made foreign alliances with many pagan nations? How did that work out for the northern kingdom of Israel when Assyria crashed its borders in 722 B.C. and obliterated it as a nation? Those Israelites are still gone. How did it work out for the southern kingdom of Judah when the stormtroopers of Babylon came through, toppling the wall, burning down the temple, and carting off Judah's best and brightest people into exile? How did that work under the rule of Constantine in the 4th century A.D.? How did that work for the Catholic Church under its authority, trying to tell everybody what their business was, in the Middle Ages, often referred to as the Dark Ages, and the case can be made, the authoritarianism of the Catholic Church helped lead into the Dark Ages. How did that work out for Southern Baptists in the battle for the Bible some 30 years ago? I supported that battle. I was a young man then. And the Bible, at least for Southern Baptists, I suppose, was saved. Yet in the end, you hear what I'm telling you? And listen, my name's already mud with the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, so it just don't matter. I got marked off their list in 2006. We don't have time to talk about it. But I refuse to take the bribe to play it their way. Let me tell you something. In the end, Southern Baptists just ended up trading one set of good old boy leaders for another set of good old boy leaders. And now they are struggling to stay in power. And what about the mess in the United Methodist Church? How is that working out for them? 
Only recently, more than 6,000 congregations broke away from the UMC to begin the global Methodist church. Are you listening to what I'm telling you? If single denominations with supposedly like-minded people can't get it together, how can it be expected that hundreds of thousands of churches with vastly different beliefs, some small, some small differences, some greater, how will they keep it together? Well, you have been hearing from speakers prior to me, they're just going to start eliminating the opposition. I will be among the opposition. What about you? In his 1981 inaugural address, Ronald Reagan said, If no one has the capacity to govern himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? Do you know why the Word of God looks upon almost every centralized anything as evil? The answer is not difficult. Here it is. Not only do governments have a tendency to take and dominate, but people at large have a tendency, people anywhere and everywhere suffer from those same tendencies. Do you know why so many marriages have such difficulty? Because one of those people wants to run the life of somebody else. Well, I got news for you, friend. That don't work in marriage. Not for very long. There is always somebody out there wanting to run your life because they think they know better than we do. It's happening in our nation even as we speak. Never mind what's going on in China, which we've heard about. Never mind what's going on in Russia. Never mind what's going on in North Korea and many other countries. The woke movement is about power. Who's going to call the shots? Who's going to run your life? I had never heard the term woke as it's used today until I went to the Southern Baptist Convention in Birmingham, Alabama. Mike, was it 2019? Something like that. And J.D. Greer marched out across the stage, a panel of people who started talking about wokeism. The only thing I knew about woke is I woke up that morning. I did not know what they were talking about. And they tried to cover it up with all this gobbledygook and gibberish. And look, folks, I may be dumb and I may be from the South, but when I see an animal that looks like a skunk, walks like a skunk, and stinks like a skunk, it's a skunk. And I went away from that convention still in ignorance, but I knew they had presented a skunk. And so I began to uh, research the matter. And it wasn't long before I discovered that here is yet another group who wants to tell me how to run my life. Here is another group who wants to tell me how I am supposed to think. Have you seen the movie Minority Report? Have you seen that movie? What's the guy's name that plays in it? Tom Cruise. He's one of our local Scientologist friends. He was a part of the 
government system checking everybody's thoughts. Somebody talked about that yesterday, I think. That there's the technology out there to know exactly what a person is thinking. And what happened is that Tom Cruise had a thought about taking someone's life. And all of a sudden, Tom Cruise was on the run. Listen, if thinking about taking somebody's life was criminal, my wife would have been in jail a long time ago. I am not talking about me. I'm talking about our children. <laughs> the parents of teenagers know why animals eat their young. That's all I'm going to say about that. The EPA is about power. In case you don't know that acronym, that's the Environmental Protection Agency. My daddy was not only a pastor, but he owned his own business. And the EPA, year in and year out, gave him fits. And many small businesses have gone out of business because the EPA wants to control everything they do. And what about the World Health Organization? Do not get me started about that. It is about power, and it made Anthony Fauci rich. Nearly everybody, everywhere, wants to run somebody else's life. And in fact, if you want to know if some movement or some issue comes down on the good side or the bad side just ask this question are you trying to run my life I don't know about you I just have this thing in me that if you try to tell me what I have to do I'm going to do just the opposite even if it's bad, even if it hurts me, you're not going to tell me what to do there's only one person that I know that tells me what to do, and that is the Lord God in heaven. And close behind him in a near second is my wife. Uh, do not encourage her. Are you trying to run my life? Well, we have to have some laws, don't we, Connell? I mean, for instance, we have to have speed limits, right? Sure. But these are minimalist things that keep us safe while we're out and about. So let's draw some conclusions and we're done. Have I gone over my time? Go, keep rolling, keep rolling. We're, we're almost done. First conclusion, God, not government, is the highest and best guarantor of freedom. 
Verse 18 tells us that the day would come for Israel when they would cry out because of their king. Why the outcry? The context of the previous seven verses tells us that it would be due to the oppressive, overbearing, unreasonable demands of the government. If you want to lose your freedom, then surrender your life to the government without question and without restriction. They will take it all. Benjamin Franklin said rebellion against tyrants is obedience to God. He based those words on the struggle of the ancient Israelites against the tyranny of the Egyptian empire. It is no accident that in the Declaration of Independence, a document based profoundly in the Bible, our founding fathers divorced the colonies from England's tyrannical rule based not on the rights given by government, but on the rights given by God. The second paragraph says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. The founders recognized that rights cannot be or right, rights cannot be given by governments, but only by God. Governments which hold the power to give rights are governments that hold the power to take away rights. When individual rights are in the hand of the government to give, those rights depend solely upon the whims and the opinions of those who happen to be in power at the moment. However, when individual rights come from the hand of God, then those rights are unalienable, they are inviolate, and they cannot be taken away. It is not the government's right to, it is not the government's job to give those rights, but to protect those rights. First conclusion, God, not government, and not Christian nationalism is the highest and best guarantor of freedom. Second conclusion, people who think that Christian nationalists would know best and always have their best interests at heart are people destined to become slaves. Verses 19 and 20, 1 Samuel 8, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said no. But there shall be a prince over us. Do, do you know what we see in those two verses? We see future slaves. We see people who wanted the government to do for them what they should have been doing for themselves. We see people who were willing to surrender their best interest to the judgment of someone else other than taking that judgment upon themselves. You see in these two verses people who put their hope in human rule rather than divine rule. Will it be any different with the utopian dreams of the Christian nationalists? I say nay. Nay. Third conclusion. Men and women have been created in the image of God, neither to be God nor to replace God, but to reflect God and to fellowship with Him. My favorite quote in the movie Braveheart occurred when William Wallace confronted the Scottish nobles about their squabbling over lands and titles. And this is what he said. You think 
the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think your position exists to provide these people with freedom, and I go to see that they have it. May God raise up men and women who go to see that we have it. So what can we do? Well, yeah, yeah, we can vote. I mean, we kind of poo-poo that now that our voting system has become so fraudulent and riddled with dishonesty. Listen, there's some ways we could fix that in a heartbeat. But those who love the fraudulent aspects of it would turn over even if they were in their graves, which is where a whole lot of those votes come from anyway, but you didn't hear that from me. We can run for public office. I've had people say to me, when are you going to run for public office? I said, I'd be assassinated inside three months. A public officiant, listen, getting anything accomplished in the government means compromising with people who, for the most part, are already corrupt. And if you do not play their game of corruption, they will usher you off to the side never to be heard of again. Well, we can stay in touch with our senators and congressmen. I do that. I, I go to a particular website that sort of keeps me up with what's going on politically and issues that would be important to me. And they know who my senators are. They know who my congressmen are. They provide a format where I can just send them a letter just like that. I'll give it to you if you want it. And they say that for every one person your senator or congressman hears from, they say that there are at least 30 more people who feel just like you do. So never underestimate the power of one voice. We can protest or speak up when and where appropriate opportunities arise. We can pray, never stop praying, never, ever stop praying we can limit the time any one person can stay in any elected office or any government position. Let me tell you what I think. Unlimited terms for senators has got to come to an end. <laughs> Unlimited terms for congressmen has got to come to an end. You think they wouldn't fight that tooth and toenail with everything they've got in them? When our longtime Congress people tell us, you need to give up your guns, then I say, when you give up your guns and your security detail and take down your fence, I'll think about it. And then John Kerry jets in on his private plane, stands out on the platform and says, now we need to have a smaller carbon footprint. And then he climbs back in his jet and goes off some three or 4,000 miles, leaving a huge, fat carbon footprint. When he starts riding a bicycle, instead of going around in a jet, I'll think about it. Am I wrong here? No. All right, fourth conclusion. For every affirmative action, there is a corresponding canceling action. 
If you think the recent SCOTUS ruling that struck down affirmative action will end affirmative action, don't bet on it. Uncle Joe's already said he'll find another way. And we'll have to fight it all over again. Fifth conclusion, men and women are not to be forced into Christianity, but one to Christianity. There's a big difference. As believers, it is our business to love people. It is our business to build relationships with people. It is our business to present the truth of the gospel as opportunities arise. And may I say, it is our business to defend freedom at every turn. Sixth and final conclusion. Thank God, right? (laughs) If we believe the Bible, then Christian nationalism is anti God. If we believe the founding fathers, then Christian nationalism is anti-freedom. If we believe, if we understand the message of both the progressive left and the progressive right, then Christian nationalism is anti-democracy. I promise you on Wednesday night when we had our panel that I would show you That what is happening in our nation is anti-freedom, anti-democracy, and anti-Christian, anti-God. If you cannot see it, well, I just don't want to talk to you anymore. (laughs) All right, let's, let's close it. You ready? Samuel... Warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the prince who will reign over them. I'm done.